welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, good morning, everyone. On the way out, Austin was taking his little little baby Willow to the nursery, saying that uh, that the heckler will no longer be in the room. And I thought, Austin, you're not that bad. Well, welcome those uh, who are joining us for the first time. Welcome those who are joining us online. My name's Ross Gilbert. I'm the pa- one of the pastors here. And uh, being the first week of school, how did everyone make out? Good? Yay! Well, I thought it's very appropriate. First week of school, we should have a pop quiz. Isn't that good? I mean, do you remember pop quizzes in school? Anyone, did anyone like pop quizzes in school? Because we can pray for you. Well, okay, we got some, one man, I see that hand, we'll pray for you. Why do you think people did not like pop quizzes? Because it's a surprise? Why, though? Why did they not like them? Because they're not prepared? What are they afraid of? Failure, right? And then if you fail, that now says something about you. It says something about your value. It must be there's something wrong with you. Maybe, maybe even to the point that you're worth, uh, worth rejection because you're inferior. And so for a lot of people, they fear these tests because these tests somehow become a judgment or a value statement of them. And therefore, you got a lot riding on these tests. And, and I think even today now, because of the, the pressure and, and the shame that kids would feel, some educators are advocating, well, we should get rid of the tests. And that way they won't struggle. They won't feel that shame. But that would be a grave mistake to just get rid of the testing because the, the reality is that testing is valuable. It's even necessary, but it's just not been understood properly. See, the test isn't done in order to assign value to a person. The point of a test is to figure out how are we doing? What's working? What's not working? What needs to be improved? And, And if we ignore those problems, we might actually find bigger problems down the road. For example, if we never test little Billy's ability to read and little Billy never learns how to read, our ignorance hasn't helped him. We've actually set him up for failure. So to test and find out, hey, Billy can't read at a young age would actually be good and helpful, right? Or, or imagine uh, cars, they didn't do any kind of crash safety tests on them anymore. They just stopped doing all that. What you would get is a bunch more Ford Pintos. Anyone remember the Ford Pinto? <laughs> Ian remembers the Ford Pinto, right? That if you got you know, hit from behind, boom, it exploded. Right. And so you need to do uh, testing in order to kind of find out what's what's uh, what's wrong with that. Or, or maybe you discover a lump where there shouldn't be a lump. So you go do testing to figure out what's going on. That's the point And that's the purpose of the testing. But to be ignorant and not do the testing can lead to grave results. I think I think of one great example. Of this is the Titanic. They didn't test the material, the steel that they put on the hull. And what ended up happening is that steel was far more brittle than it should have been. And if they had proper steel on the hull, it still probably would have sunk, but it would have sunk a whole lot slower. 
and many lives could have been saved. But because they didn't do the testing, they, they put inferior steel out there, it led to the deaths of hundreds of people. And so it's important that we do tests. So in the spirit of that, we're going to do maybe the most important test that you'd ever have. And that test is, do you have faith in Christ? You see, to ignore this test is far greater than to ignore the testing on a Ford Pinto or, or Lump or Little Billy Reed or even the Titanic. Because yes, even some of those lack of testing led to physical deaths. This death leads to far greater damage, far greater peril, which is a death into our experiencing in our souls and our spirit. So the test really applies to our eternal destiny. And so that's the test that we want to do, because that's the test that Paul presents to these Corinthians here in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. So if you want, you can turn your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and uh, I'm going to read verses 5 and 6. Paul writes to them. He says, test yourselves to see if you are, uh, see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail this test. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning, um, as we test ourselves, as we examine ourselves to see the state of our faith, and if we have it or not, it's a critical test, not meant to assign value or judgment, but rather to find out, are we in good shape or not? Are there things that needs to change in our lives as a result if we don't, if we don't pass this test? And so we're going to trust your Holy Spirit to speak to us, not in a condemning way, not in a judgment way, but one that uplifts and encourages and gives us hope. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, before we could apply the test, I think it's important for us to understand uh, what salvation is. What is it that we're being saved from and, and to and such? And so both the Hebrew and the Greek, the word means to save. It means to redeem. It means to rescue, to heal, to make whole or to set free. That's really what this salvation is. And in the, in the Old Testament in particular, often it was in reference to physical harm. Right. So there might be a nation like the Philistines were attacking Israel. And so they would pray, God, will you save us? Will you rescue us from these attacks? And you see many of the Psalms David writes in, in the book of Psalms are referring to his physical danger that he was under. We see it in the New Testament where Peter, he was out on the water and he was walking and he was he was beginning to to sink. And he, he cried out, save me to Jesus. He was talking about his physical safety that he was needing rescuing in. But often in the New Testament, we see it referring to something much greater. So, for example, in Matthew 16, where Jesus says, why chase after the world? Why, why get everything you can in this world, but not save your own souls? And that isn't talking about physical danger. It's talking about the, spa the state of our inner being. And that's the salvation that Paul here says needs to be tested because it is far more important than anything physical. So if our inner being, the very core of who we are, needs saving, and that's the part that needs uh, redemption and rescuing, I think the logical question is, well, what does it need to be saved from? And the answer goes all the way back to that garden in Adam and Eve, and how when they ate of that tree, they plunged all of humanity under sin, 
right? Romans 5, 12, the result of one man's transgression, one man's choice, one man's sin, he plunged all of humanity into sin. Sin entered the world. It entered all of us. We all experienced that because, as Paul says in Romans 5, 12, we all participated in that sin. We all sinned with him in that garden. And so as a result of that, now we need saving. We need rescuing from that because that sin created a separation between God and mankind, between God and you. So when you and I arrive here on planet Earth, we're already born separate. We're born a sinner. We're born disconnected from that life of God. And if we do nothing about that and we just kind of go through life and nothing changes, then where's our destination? Now, it's commonly said, well, hell. But that's actually not our last destination if we never accept this gift of salvation. Our final destination is actually the lake of fire that was prepared beforehand, not for us, but for Satan and the angels that followed him. We're going we're gonna to read a lot of verses this morning, so I'm not going to get you flipping through verses. We're going to put the verses on the screen here. We're going to have some mercy on your soul. But uh, in Revelation verse tw- or chapter 20, verses 11 and 14, John writes this. He said, then I saw a great white throne. So this is at the very end. He says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. That's Jesus. From whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which is in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which are in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Hades is hell. And so hell, it gives up its dead to be judged. And then it goes on and says, then death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Those are sobering words. It's not messing around anymore here. And and I know we we probably don't want to think about it, if we're honest, because it's terrifying. And maybe you know some people, some friends and loved ones, or even people in your family, that that is their fate right now. That they've rejected this gift of salvation. They've rejected God's offer to them. And so right now, that's their fate. That's the path they're on that they are heading towards the lake of fire. And I know we don't want to think about that because it's so, so sobering and terrifying, but sticking our head in the sand doesn't do us any good at all. There's a couple of false teachings I think I want to address this morning around this issue of salvation. And we're not going to, we're not going to go into too much detail on it because I want to make sure you can make your reservation for social A, so we'll honor that. But, um, but it is important to recognize. And the first false teaching I want to talk about is universalism. Or sometimes it's called Christian universalism. Really, they're the same, but people try to, to split that hair. But, but universalism is the belief that everyone has been saved. Everyone is going to heaven one day. And so there's really no worry about hell. Everything's going to be okay. It doesn't matter if you're a Muslim or a Jew, if you're a Hindu, if you're an atheist, if you drive a Volkswagen, you too have a place in heaven one day, right? So that's sort of this idea of universalism. 
And I, and I say there's a distinction some make between universalism and Christian universalism, simply because universalism would say it doesn't matter what you believe, that all roads lead to heaven. Whereas Christian universalism would say, no, 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 it matters that Jesus is the only one that saves. But the reality is he saves everyone. And so really, there's no distinction. They both get to that same point. The reason I, I mention that is because some people like to play games. When, when they're presenting what they're teaching, you say, well, that's universalism. Oh, no, that's, I'm not a universalist. Because they would, they would, they're splitting hairs, and they're trying to say, well, universalist says it doesn't matter about Jesus. I know that Jesus rescued. I just believe he's rescued everyone. Well, that's still universalism. They just call it Christian universalism. But there's really no difference between the two of them. They're just simply trying to play games in order to avoid a label because they know that universalism teaching is unbiblical. Now, the earliest example I found of this being taught goes back to the third century with a man named Origen. He was one of the early church fathers. Uh, but likely, my guess is, it was going on before that. Uh, maybe he, Origen was just the first to kind of kind of put it in writing for, for you know, posterity. But the reality is it's probably going on for a long time, and it will probably go on until the day Jesus comes back. And so we're not going to fully eradicate that teaching or, or some people being uh, teaching it. But it is important that we recognize it as false teaching, as not true. And, and the idea here of universalism is kind of taken on a couple different forms. So some would believe that, yeah, it doesn't matter. When you die, you will wake up in heaven. Regardless of what you believe, regardless of what you, how you live, because of what Jesus said in the cross, the whole universe, the whole world is saved. That's what some believe. And others would believe, well, no, the scriptures do talk about, you know, lake of fire and Hades and hell. And, and so there's a time they will go there. But eventually they will be given option and opportunity over and over again to receive Christ. And they will be able to accept salvation while in hell, going to heaven. And eventually all of the lake of fire will be wiped out clean because everyone will come to salvation. And, and one famous author, Rob Bell, wrote a book, Love Wins, along that, that line, that teaching. The, the problem is there are, there are too many verses that say otherwise. We, we just read in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 and 14, about that judgment, that they're going to go to the lake of fire. It wasn't prepared for them. It wasn't God's desire that they'd go there. But because of their rejection of the gospel, that's where they're going to end up. I had a man come to me not too long ago. He, he knew I was a pastor, and he, he, he believes in this idea of universalism. He came up to me, and he says, do you believe that the hand of God is so short that he can't rescue us? It was a leading question. He had an agenda. And, and really what he was trying to say is that if I say that it's not universalism, I'm saying our God's not big enough. Our God's not strong enough. And so he's like, do you really think our, our God's hand is so short he can't save people? Even while they're in hell or the lake of fire, you don't, you don't think he can still save people? Well, we got a verse for that. Isaiah 59 verse 1 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that he cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that he cannot hear. And you might look at it and go, well, that's, there it is. Perfect. God can save everyone. Doesn't matter. Universalism. Close up shop. Let's go. Uh, verse two. Keep reading. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. It's not that he's not able to. It's that you've rejected it, and he's honoring the rejection. He's honoring that separation. 
And so he could. The problem is the scripture says he doesn't. Now, please understand, if I show up in heaven and Hitler's there and Osama bin Laden's there and Jack the Ripper's there and the guy who invented country music's there, if they're all there, I will celebrate. I will celebrate being wrong about universals. I'll be the first guy because I hate the thought of people going to the lake of fire. But my problem is scripture says that's the case. Scripture says it's not about universalism. Matthew 7, 21 to 23, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. We're going to see later on that will is to believe. It's not about your performance. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform any miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. We had no relationship. We had no connection. Not once. It wasn't I knew you for a time and you fell away, by the way, but I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Or in Matthew 25, we have the, uh, that passage, uh, but the sheep and the goats. It's a long passage. We're not going to read all of it. But he, Jesus is talking about that judgment day. What we read in Revelation chapter 20 and how the goats go to the left and the sheep go to the right. And how he says, I'm going to bless the sheep who my father has loved and my father is blessed. But to the goats, he says, there's punishment. And he summarized it in the last verse of that passage in verse 46. He says, these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. It's not punishment for a time until they eventually believe, but an eternal punishment. We're in John 3, 36. Jesus is speaking here and he, he summarizes his message. He says, he who believes in the son has eternal life. He who places faith in Jesus as the Messiah has eternal life. But he who does not obey now, notice here that he's contrasting. And the point I want to make here is that obedience is, the, is, is what faith is. And disobedience is the lack of faith. So it's not obedience to a series of rules and commands and the law. It's about faith. So he who's obedient, he who believes, has eternal life. But he who does not believe, he who is disobedient, does not obey the Son, will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. And then 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his power. I, I, I hate this thought, but it's real. And, and for us to ignore it is only setting people up for failure. See, proponents of universalism, they, what they do is they tend to ignore these verses. I've even had people, they just ignore entire books of the Bible. Well, we can ignore Second Thessalonians. We don't really need revelation. We don't need this book. I'm just going to focus on, on these verses and ignore the rest. They're not being intellectually honest. And despite warnings like in Second Peter 3.16, they're doing it to their own destruction, twisting and distorting the word of God. But what they end up doing is they don't make the case biblically, so they make it philosophically. And so they, they say things, well, well, God is love. Well, what loving God wouldn't rescue everyone? What loving God would allow or send people to hell? And they're making an, a, an emotional argument, a philosophical argument. 
that's really based on their definition of love. So think about it. God loves you so much, he's going to force his love upon you even though you don't want it. Isn't that loving? That's not what he does. He loves you enough to respect you and respect your choice, even if it means to deny him at your own cost. And please understand, God doesn't send anyone to hell or to the lake of fire. People chose that in choosing to reject God. See, it's on them. But here's, here's a thought. Let's assume for a moment universalism is true. Let's assume for a moment, you, when, you, when you have that immutable blank, when you close your eyes for the final time, and you're gone, and you wake up in heaven, and everyone's there, then what's the point of all this today? What's the point? Why are we still here? I mean, if, if all we're here is just going to suffer and suffer and suffer, and then we're all going to go and celebrate, can't we just cut to the good part right now? Can't we just ignore all this pain and suffering? It's pointless. It's also cruel. It's cruel that God wouldn't rescue us, knowing that, hey, it's all going to work out in the end. But right now, it does matter. It matters. And because it matters, we have opportunity and we have time. We're going to see a verse later on that speaks to that. But here's really the biggest argument, I, I would say, against the universalism is our Father's word doesn't teach it. Bottom line, our Father's word doesn't teach it, teach it. We need to take the full counsel of the word of God. Acts 20, verse 27 says that. Paul says, I taught you the full counsel of the word of God. We, need to, we can't just cherry pick, I like the scripture, I don't like this one, I can ignore this one, I'm gonna twist this one to get what I want. No, no, I'm not the authority. God is. And he has written in his word what is the truth. And it's now my job to submit myself to that. And we may not like it, but it's still very clear that those who rejected Jesus, the wrath of God remains on them. Jesus said that. And to teach otherwise is truly dangerous. It, I, I make this strong comparison, but I, I think it doesn't even begin to describe it. But it's akin to the Nazis who are speaking to the Jews as they walk into the shower, the gas chamber. And they just said, it's okay. You're just gonna have a nice little shower. Everything's gonna be all right. And it's a big lie to provide a false comfort so they don't do anything to maybe save themselves. And you see, if it's all universalism, it doesn't matter if you believe or not, just go about your life. Who has a vested interest in pro uh, propagating that lie? Satan does, and it's his lie to provide that false comfort, that false belief that everything's okay, you don't need to worry about it, but it's only leading them to their destruction. So the Bible doesn't teach universalism. The other false doctrine, and this might ruffle some feathers, but the other one I want to address this morning is the reformed or Calvinist belief that, that God has chosen those to be saved and therefore predestined some and not predestined others. Now I know that that might ruffle some feathers because this is, this is a, a huge part of Christianity believes this in some shape and some form. So we do want to examine this a little bit, but, but essentially this is this predestined argument. It says that man is first born again by God, having no part of that. So God causes the person to be born again. And in that moment, they're changed. The, the sinner is crucified with Christ. They're, they're buried with Christ. They're born again, new creation. They're made holy and righteous. And now they believe. 
And because they believe, well, actually they're saved and then they believe. So it's, it's born again, now you're saved and then you believe. That's the argument. That's the, the order of salvation that they would say. Which I always think at the end, why do you need to believe now? What do you believe in? It's already done. And so there, there really no, no, no sense to that. But, but really what that means is the idea here is that salvation only comes because God chose you. Then if you're not saved, it's not really your fault, is it? It's God's fault for not choosing you. And so if that were the case and someone stands before, before God on that judgment day and, and God begins to judge them, the guy could say, well, wait a minute. It's not my fault. It's your fault. How can you judge me for what you did? And they'd be right. But Romans 1.20 says that there'll, there'll be no excuse on judgment day. And so it's not that God didn't choose you. That's not it. But think about it. And this is the part where it gets interesting because there's all kinds of different flavors of, of reformed or Calvinist predestination teaching. But there's only one that's intellectually honest, right? Because there's some that say, well, yes, he, God chose some people. And that means, well, what about the rest of the people? Well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe they, maybe they could, maybe, maybe if they knew enough good things, maybe, maybe they might believe, maybe they got a chance. Well, that, that doesn't make sense. Either he chose you or he didn't. And so if he chose some for salvation, what did he choose for the rest? He chose damnation. He damned them to the lake of fire. There's no other way around it. That's the only intellectually honest approach you can take. If he chose some to be saved, he therefore chose others to be damned. Because if salvation can only come through choosing, that's on God. That's not what scripture says. 2 Peter 3 to 9, 3 verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise. And guess what promise that is? I'll see you soon. Someone needs to talk to Jesus about soon, right? The Lord, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, all to come to salvation. You know, part of me says, oh, Lord, it would be amazing if you came today. We'd be done. Be out of here. That'd be amazing. But, but could you save one more? Maybe just save one more person before you come. Because that's one less person in the lake of fire. So just, just one more person. Okay, maybe, maybe two. Lord, could, could you maybe save more people? So take your time, Jesus. I know that means more pain and sorrow for us, but it's worth it because this life matters. It matters what's happening. But the heart is he wishes all to come to repentance. First Timothy 2, 4, Jesus desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. He didn't just choose some, it's for everyone. For God so loved the elect, the ones he chose, for God so loved the world. Right? That whoever believes, whoever believes shall not perish. You see, for God to choose about salvation robs you and I of the very thing that he came to do. 
Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ sets you free. To force salvation on you is to rob you of your freedom. Now, please understand, part of me at times, like, God, don't give me that freedom because I just keep screwing it up. Take control. But he loves me enough to say no. I didn't come to put you into bondage. I came to set you free, which includes the freedom to choose. That matters. Now, Calvin is teaching that it says, but, but man can't say no to God. Man can't reject God. Oh, really? Let's see that in scripture. Acts, oh, sorry, Luke chapter 7, verse 30. The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Looks like they said no to God, right? God had a purpose. What was the purpose for these Pharisees? Be baptized under John's baptism. Listen to this man. Follow this man. Sit under his teaching. That was what God wanted for these people. And what did they say? They said no. Or you got Jesus at the end of his ministry and he's outside Jerusalem looking it over in Matthew 23 and verse 37. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who sent to her. How often I've wanted to gather your, your children together away, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus was willing. Jesus wanted it. God wanted it. Who didn't want it? Israel didn't want it. The Pharisees didn't want it. Mankind didn't want it. And so they didn't come. And God desires all of humanity to be saved. It's his heart. It's his desire. The reality is not all of humanity wants God. And they've rejected God. And by doing so, they're choosing the outcome of that. Well, what about the verses that mention predestination then? I'm glad you asked. Thank you, Cheryl, for asking that question. Six times the word predestination shows up in scripture. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this because it's Swiss Chalet and all that. So we're going to go through really quickly. Six times the word predestination shows up in, in scripture. Now, whenever you're studying scripture, the rule number one, rule number one, the proper understanding scripture is context. Right? That's the most important thing. So when you're reading these six verses on predestination, you have to ask the question, predestined to what? The problem is, we've heard it over and over again, we read the word predestination and we add in predestined to salvation. And we're adding that, we're reading that into the scripture. That's called eisegesis, where you're adding your own interpretation into it. Where what we're supposed to do is exegesis. Let the scripture speak to you. So what we should do is every time we see that word predestination, ask the question, in context, predestined to what? Well, the first time it shows up is in Acts chapter 4, verse 28. And over there, it's referring to the plans that the Jews had and, and Herod had and Pilate had towards the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That was their predestined plan. That's all predestined means. It doesn't mean control. For example, the Leafs are predestining, they're planning their win to, to have the Stanley Cup parade. Is it going to happen? Yes. <laughs> There's that man's faith. Good faith, good faith. Delusional, but faithful. I appreciate that. So in Acts 4, it isn't talking about salvation. It's talking about the Jews and Pilate and Herod's plan to crucify Jesus. That was their plan. And they did it. 
but it was a plan. Next, it shows up. It shows up twice in, in Romans 8, 28, and 29. And here, God's plan is to shape and conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. That's growing up. That's maturing. That's what it's talking about. The moment you and I got saved, God began his predestined plan to shape you and I to look more and more like him. That's it. It wasn't about getting some to be saved and then some going to hell. It was simply now you're saved. Let's get to work because God began to work in you and he's going to complete that work. He's got to have a plan for that. In the same way that, that builders have plans where they go to build a house, they got a plan. First Corinthians two, verse seven, God's plan was to reveal his wisdom to you and I as we mature. And then in Ephesians one, five and verse 11 shows up again twice in, in Ephesians one there that predestined says, well, predestined to the adoptions of sons. Well, there, there it is. That's salvation. Nope. Adoption of sons is not talking about salvation. See, we think of adoption of sons as in, in, our, in our current context, current culture, where adoption is someone is outside your family and they are adopted into your family. But that's not the adoption of sons that is being spoken of here. Adoption in the Roman world was where, where the, a very wealthy man would take his young son, his young child, and as they've grown up, you don't want a five-year-old to know that they have all the power, that they're you know, right below mom and dad, because a five-year-old bossing around the servants never ends well. So what they would do is they would place a servant, a paedagogos, the governor, over the child, meaning the child didn't have the rights, didn't have authority until they reached an age. And that age, they would now say, you now, I recognize you, you're mature enough, you're wise enough, you're in the inheritance, you're adopted as sons. You're welcomed into the family. They didn't change families, but their status changed. They graduated. And so adoptions of sons, Romans 8 tells us, if you read Romans 8, I think verse 23, the adoptions of sons, and then Paul explains it, the, the redemption of our bodies. See, the adoption of sons is when you and I get a new body, a glorified body. It's not talking about salvation. It's talking about the glorification that awaits us. So each time predestination shows up, it's not talking about salvation. Read it in context. See, the reality is universalism and predestination have a lot in common. You see, where the difference is universal applies to everyone, predestination applies to only some, but in both cases, they reject the need for you and I to have any part of it. They, re they reject the idea that we bear any responsibility for our own choices. And they reject the notion that God offers man enough love to give him a free choice. The very same thing he did to Adam and Eve in, in the Garden of Eden. Right? I mean, if there's predestination, if, there's, if, if there's, he's going to rob man of his choice, then why have that second tree? Why not just the tree of life? and control us that way. But he didn't. He gave us a choice because our choice matters. So let's return back to our passage of study then where we're to test ourselves. So 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. The Greek word there to, to test means to examine, to scrutinize, to check out. And Paul is saying that they should examine themselves to see if they possess faith in Christ. Because that faith is required for salvation. Now please understand, I'm not saying your faith saves you. Grace saves you, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, by grace you've been saved through faith. It's the gift of God. 
The gift isn't your faith. The gift is the grace. The Greek grammar makes that clear. And so he doesn't give you the gift of faith. He gave you the gift of grace. And your faith doesn't save you. In the same way that your faith doesn't hold you up on your chair right now. Right? You all came in and you sat down. You exercised faith in the chair. But it wasn't about the size of your faith that's keeping you up. Amen? It's the strength of the chair that's doing it. You just need a little bit of faith. The mustard seed of faith. But the chair is providing the strength. In the same way, it's not about your faith. It's the object of your faith. What are you putting your faith in? Because we're putting our faith in Jesus and his grace. That's what saves us. Not us. Not what we do. And so it's just a matter of putting our faith in him. And he responds by giving this gift of salvation. Again, let's look at some verses. Acts 16, verse 31. Uh, it says there, speaking of the Philippine, Philippine jailer. It says, uh, what must I do to be saved? And the answer was, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Notice it doesn't say, be saved and then you will believe. That's predestination. It says, believe and then you will be saved. That's the order of it. It's simply me saying, God, rescue me. That's it. That's all. I need, I need you to save me. And he does all the work. But he's waiting for that opportunity where we invite him to do it. Romans 10, beginning in verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. That's the gospel. Believe that Jesus is Jesus, that he's the Messiah, he's God, and he rescued you, he redeemed you, and you, you will be saved. For with a heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with a mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. See the condition? It's not whoever is chosen. It's not the whole world. But whoever believes... For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, between white and black, male and female. Even Ottawa senators, Montreal Canadiens, and Leaf fans can come together on this one. That's not what matters, right? There's neither Jew nor Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's our Father's word. In Acts 13, this is the end of one of Paul's sermons. And he's going through the history of Israel and, and all what's happened to them. And he, he basically summarizes it in verses 38 and 39. He says, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. It's done. Jesus died on the cross for the world. 1 John 1, or 2.1, right? That he died not just for my sins, not just your sins, but the sins of the whole world. He's the propitiation, the wrath averting sacrifice. That doesn't mean everyone's saved though, right? Forgiveness sins is offered, it's proclaimed to you through him. Everyone who believes is freed. That word freed means literally is to be made righteous from all things from which you could not be freed, made righteous through the law of Moses. It wasn't about your works, your performance, and how you kept your nose clean. It was about faith in Jesus. It's that simple. 
Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Your faith is not a work. In the same way, your faith doesn't hold you up on that chair. The chair is doing all the work. And then John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, the whole world, that whoever, 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 ever, ever believes, puts their faith, their trust into Christ, into him. They shall not perish. They shall not go to the lake of fire, but they shall have eternal life. That's the promise. So salvation is a simple result of recognizing our need for salvation and asking Jesus to be our savior. That's repentance. Remember we talked about repentance the last couple of weeks, changing our mind. And we got to change our mind that I need to be saved. Changing our mind to recognizing there's only one that can save me and that Jesus has already done it. Repent and believe. And then as a result of placing our faith in Christ, you're forgiven. You're washed clean. Yeah, even for that sin. And that one. And all those ones. And the ones you haven't even done yet. And you were crucified and you were buried and you were born again as a new creation that's good and holy and pure and right. It's who you are. And now you're a saint, a holy one that's qualified for the life of God to come and live inside you right now, taking up permanent residence inside you. And that was the test, right? Don't you know that salvation means Christ in you? You and I, we don't have to, we don't have to pray for a second blessing. Come, Holy Spirit, fill me. Come into me. No, no, no. If, you, if you're saved, you got him. That's what Romans 8 9 says. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If, if you don't have the spirit today, you're not saved. Bottom line. That's the test that he's saying. Is Christ in you? Because if you are, you're saved. If you're not, if he's not, then you fail the test. Not shame, not condemnation, not judgment, but alert. Hey, that means you're on the wrong path. You're in a sinking ship, but there's a way out. Now, we don't have time to go into all this, but can you lose your salvation? You can't. You can't lose what you didn't earn. No one, no one can snatch you away from your father's hand. Nothing can separate you from his love. God says, I will never leave you ever. You're his. But do you see now the importance of evangelism? those people you thought of earlier that you didn't want to think about that are on that path right now to, to the lake of fire. Who's going to tell them? Who's going to love them enough? Who's going to even risk the relationship? And we're talking about for a while about conf confronting people and engaging in conflict and difficult relationships, but we do it out of love. And yet sometimes we don't or aren't willing to confront the loved one who's not saved because we don't want to, we don't want to ruin the relationship. And I understand that you want to make sure you have a good relationship in order to, to earn the right to share the gospel, but some people just keep kicking that can down the road. I, I just, I don't want to ruin it yet. I don't want to take the chance yet. And I understand that, but at some point, listen to the Holy Spirit, have courage. Romans 10, verse 14 and 17. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of life or by, by the word of Christ. We have Jesus' final instructions in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. The best way to understand that verse is as you are going. It's not like, oh, go, join a mission team. Go, go join a mission organization. Go overseas or, or go over here. Go there. And, and, and no, no, no. As you are going. When you go to work tomorrow. Or when you go for a walk in the neighborhood and you see your neighbor. When you're at the grocery store. As you are going through life. Ask Jesus, Father, is this someone you want me to share your gospel with? It's got to be led by him, right? Because it has to be done by him. You and I, apart from him, can do nothing. But are we even giving him the opportunity or are we missing the opportunities that God's asking us for? There's too much on the line. Now, the reality is, I cannot say with certainty that everyone here will pass the test. Stats will tell us that there, were, there are people in every church who just show up on Sundays but have no faith. And as I thought about that, I mean, imagine this scenario. Someone shows up. They don't think about God at all. They don't really care, but they're doing it because they're supposed to. Maybe their spouse drags them there. And so they show up right on time, and they leave on amen. Out, right? And that's it. They're done. I put in my time, punch the clock. I'm out of here. And they might say, I'm not a religious person. I thought about that and I thought, you know, actually you are the most religious person. What's religious about it? You're simply going through the motions. You're simply punching a clock. There's no faith. There's no relationship. There's no heart behind it. You're doing it because you're supposed to. You're following the rules. That's what religious people do. Whereas the rest of us that are here because we want to connect with Jesus and, and with his family and with one another, want to hear from God, want to praise God, there's nothing religious about it. So the reality is there are people here, likely people here, who have never actually invited that salvation. And so maybe today can be the day. Maybe, maybe today you can experience life in Jesus. How do I know? That's the question I often get. How do I know I'm saved? And, and the answer I give people is, well, chances are asking the question tells me your heart's desire. If you care that you, you're worried about not being saved, that tells me your heart's desire is you want to be saved. But then I'll say, why don't you ask God? Because he's in you, right? And it says in Romans 8 that we get to cry out to Abba, Father who will then testify to us that we're his child. And so if you have that question in your heart, ask him, Jesus, am I saved? Am I yours? And if you hear nothing, then maybe today could be the day. Real short story. I had a lady come for counseling one time, and uh, I remember just looking in her eyes and listening to her. She was not saved. So I asked her, tell me about your relationship with Jesus. Oh, I used to go to church all the time. 
And we'd have, we'd have potlucks and we'd have small groups and I'd go out with friends and, oh, it was great at church. What did I ask? Tell me about Jesus. And what did you tell me? Show me about church. So I, I pushed her a little bit. I said, well, that's, that's church, but what about Jesus? Well, now she's getting angry. I pray all the time. I already know, Matt. No, you don't. I guarantee you don't pray all the time, but okay. You're, you're using hyperbole. I get that. I talk to God all the time. Good, good, good. What does Jesus say to you? And that was the moment the penny dropped. Eyes got wide. Mouth got slack. And it occurred to her. She'd been having a, a conversation with someone that wasn't answering. That maybe she didn't have the relationship she thought she did. Let's pray. Father, this, this gift of salvation isn't hard for us. It's, it's not about us. It's not what we do. It's, uh, it's a result of what you've done. And Father, there are people here right now who are, might be asking, Lord, am I saved? And they're not hearing anything. And maybe there are people here, Lord, that already know the answer to that is no. And so if that's you, would you, would you just simply call out to him? You can raise a hand. You can do it in your heart. Doesn't, there's no special prayer to it. It's just saying, God, I want you. I need you. That's it. And he's promised to be faithful. He's promised to wash you clean. He's promised to make you righteous and part of his family forever. All you got to do is believe and you will be saved. Thank you, Jesus, for these people who are saving right now. And I pray for those who already know you, that you would impress upon our heart those opportunities to share this wonderful news with other people, people who, are, who need it, people who are on the, on the path that leads to destruction. That we'd have the courage to risk the relationship even, to risk the conflict, not to shove it down their throat, not to beat them up, but to speak truth and love as prompted by you. Knowing that you're the one that is their savior. In your name we pray, amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.